Servus and greetings from Vienna. My name is Anita Posch. Thank you for listening to Bitcoin und Co., my podcast that's introducing the philosophy, ideas and people behind Bitcoin. You will find additional information and links that are mentioned in this episode in the episode description on the website bitcoincopodcast.com or in your podcast player. I would like to hear from you, so you either leave a comment or you will also find a link to send me a voice message. For weekly updates, subscribe to my newsletter at anitaposch.com slash newsletter. Before we start, a short message from my sponsors. Do you want to keep your Bitcoin safe long term? The Card Wallet is the best cold storage solution a retail customer can get. It's easy to use and completely offline. No hassles with updates, passwords or hacks. I gave one to friends as a wedding gift. They are Bitcoin newbies, but with the card wallet, even they can hodl Bitcoin securely. And the best thing is, my friends at cardwallet.com made a special offer for all the listeners of my podcast. If you go to www.cardwallet.com forward slash Anita, you'll get 20% off the price. So go to www cardwallet.com forward slash A-N-I-T-A and buy a card wallet with a 20% discount. So hello and welcome to this episode of the Bitcoin and Co. podcast. Today I am joined by one of the Bitcoin core developers, Matt Corello, who started working on Bitcoin, I think, at the age of 19 or 18. Uh, something like that. Something yeah. like that. That was in 2011. Early 2011, yeah. Uh, now he's working full-time on open-source projects for Bitcoin at Chaincoin Labs. Chaincoin, yep. Hi, Matt. Thanks that you're here. Yeah, for thanks your time. for having me. I have to say I'm really fascinated by all the bright minds who I met in the last month and on these Bitcoin conferences um, who work on that important and critical financial infrastructure like Bitcoin. And even more if they are as young as you are. <laughs> I think you're 26, if I may say. 26, yeah. yeah everybody can calculate that from yeah, what we said before. That's true. So you were quite young when you started working on Bitcoin. Can you please tell us what did you do before? What's your education and how did you get into Bitcoin? Yeah, I was, um, when I started, I was actually in high school. Um, so I guess right at the end of high school. Um, so I kind of, to some extent, cut my teeth coding on bitcoin i'd done a number of you know various projects as a bored student does on computers but i uh, had never really gotten deep into kind of that kind of engineering like rigorous engineering but at the same time in 2011 bitcoin was not uh particularly fantastic quality software um so how it, many people were working on it at that time uh, a bunch of people got in in early 2011, very end of 2010, that was the first time that Bitcoin kind of showed up on, uh, at the time, Slashdot, back when Slashdot was a thing, before Reddit. 
and Bitcoin showed up a number of times at the top of Slashdot. And so a number of people got in from that, including Greg Maxwell, Peter Wola, uh, Vladimir, and other folks who are still very active on Bitcoin Core got in kind of around the same time within a few months of each other. Mm -hmm. Um, So it was the technical community grew rapidly around that time. But how did you find it? I mean, you were in high school and like coding and doing stuff just as a young guy. Yeah. Um, how did well, you stumble? I was upon? bored in high school, so <laughs> spent a lot of time on the computer. But but yeah, I, I discovered it from some podcast that I listen to regularly. I'm sure they discovered it from Slashdot. It it was all kind of it got picked up a little bit in the tech community uh, around that time. So a bunch of people discovered it indirectly from various slash dottings and podcasts and whatnot. Mm -hmm. But interesting, then you see the importance of podcasts. <laughs> It's true. <laughs> okay. I know that you're also a pretty good German speaker. Es geht. Ja, aber ich finde ganz gut. Also so eine normale flüssige Kommunikation, so ein Gespräch können wir schon führen. Ja, ähm, ja, mein Feldschaft ist ein bisschen klein und Akzent geht und mein Grammatik ist scheiße, aber verstehen kann ich am meisten. Ja, super. That's about the same in English for me. <lacht> But uh, why is that? I mean, have you been in Germany? Or? Ja, ich habe eigentlich ähm, zu dem Zeit, als ich Bitcoin gefunden habe, äh, in der Nähe von Frankfurt gelebt. Ähm, für zwei Jahre am Ende Hochschule habe ich in Frankfurt gelebt und auch in deutsches Kindergarten gegangen eigentlich, oh. als ich ganz klein war. So, ich are your, is your family German speaking? Or? No, well, my parents learned it somewhat while we lived there, but they uh, just worked for a German company and ah, we were, okay. were over for a few years and then we moved back and I did German in school in the US and then we moved back at the end of high school. Okay. Uh, and I kept it up a little bit, but To be honest, I don't have many op uh, opportunities to speak it anymore, so you I'm lose it, mostly course, yeah. losing it. Yeah. So, but I've seen on your Twitter and your webpage, you have stations like San Francisco, Montreal, and now you live in New York. Are you from San Francisco? Or uh, no, I lived in San Francisco briefly. I never lived in Montreal. Blockstream was technically founded in Montreal. Ah. Um, there was some plans for people to move there, but no one ever really did. But I lived uh, after college. I moved to San Francisco for a few years, uh, was there while I was working for Blockstream, and then I moved to New York for Chaincode. Um, Chaincode's kind of philosophy to some extent is to have people in the same room. Uh -huh. And so one of the requirements for working for Chaincode is in New York, in the office every day. It's not, you know, really a remote whatever. Um, but, it's but very why? much what are, the, what are the reasons for no remote work? I mean, if you want funding as a remote developer working on bitcoin it's generally doable if you're like very active and you uh have shown good work you know uh, we've had great success working with various companies who want to sponsor people especially over the last year or two or three uh before that maybe not so much but more recently it's become an option uh so chain code doesn't really need to fund it ourselves and so I mean, I don't know. There's value in having verbal communication day to day and seeing people and, and interacting. Whereas, you know, remote is obviously also an option working on Bitcoin Core and other Bitcoin projects, but uh, just not directly funded by Chaincode usually. Mm -hmm. And what was the what were the first things you were working on in Bitcoin? 
Um, early when I first got in, I think one of my or probably my first major patch was UPnP support in Bitcoin Core, so that gets you uh, automatic port forwarding, which means that uh, your node that you just install on your computer becomes a full listening node um, because it'll automatically connect to your router and configure your router to to forward connections through to the Bitcoin node. So I think that was one of my first patches, then like wallet encryption, worked on Bitcoin Core for a while, and then ended up doing any number of other projects. And, and did you do that just as a side project back then? Or yeah, have you yeah, been that funded was, already? No, no. It was long before you could realistically get funding working on Bitcoin Core. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I did. I contributed through the very end of high school and then through college and then uh, joined Blockstream coming out of college. Okay. So I've uh, seen that you wrote that you co-founded Blockstream. How came that about? How what was that? Yeah, that was, I mean, right around when uh, I was finishing up with college, uh, right? Kind of, I graduated a year early to go join. At the time, it was kind of just an effort to get a bunch of developers funded, in part, be uh, prior to Blockstream, really, most of the people who were particularly active on Bitcoin didn't have access to funding to work full-time on it. There was some effort through the Bitcoin Foundation to fund uh, Vladimir and Gavin and a few other people, uh, but that never really took off, and they never really had the funding to grow it. And so the philosophy of Blockstream was, well, let's find all of the people who are doing this part-time, who are really smart, who have, who are active on it. Let's get them all together. Let's co-found something. And let's see how we can contribute to the ecosystem as a group of people who have deep knowledge about this yeah. space. I mean, and because it's great to work as an open source contributor, but you have to live from something. Right. And if you have a full-time job, I mean, uh, you know, I was a student, but... Peter was, had a full-time job at Google, and Greg had a full-time job at Mozilla, and, you know, all these folks had some full-time job doing something else, and so, you know, it was nice to pull everyone in kind of full-time and make Bitcoin a full-time gig. Mm -hmm. So when you heard about Bitcoin in those days on a podcast or somewhere else, what was the thing that got you interested in? I think I loved the this kind of economic incentive model security theory around Bitcoin, around incentivizing miners to behave correctly and that providing security on kind of this weird meta level across the uh, system. I found that really fascinating and I kind of wanted to work on it a little bit and the quality of the software wasn't all that special, so me being a terrible coder was acceptable. I could meaningfully contribute Because the software was already so bad. Okay. <laughs> so you could learn with Bitcoin. Right. Learn and grow. Right. Okay, uh, great. I very much did. Yeah. What are other aspects in Bitcoin that you like? Yeah, I think over time that's become... It's no longer kind of my main interest. I mean, I, I've certainly developed an interest in the kind of uncensorable payment philosophy around or uncensorable finance philosophy around Bitcoin. Um, this kind of opportunity to provide financial services and to provide these things for people who otherwise don't have access to it, right? No one is going to choose to use Bitcoin instead of their credit card if they have no reason for it 
because their credit card probably works fine, but at least in the U.S., almost half of Americans don't have access to good financial services. A lot of businesses don't have access to good financial services. You look outside the Western world, it's significantly more severe. It's a little better in Europe, but, uh, you know, there there are a lot of areas where you can provide a lot of value by providing financial service that don't have these central roots of trust, which, you know, banks are very efficient because we both agree to trust the bank and to trust the banking system. And that makes everything really smooth and really efficient. But at the same time, that means the banks have to be very conservative with their reputation and they have to be very conservative about payments that they accept and this results in a lot of people kind of not having access to the system that, you know, we as relatively well-off Westerners have access to. And so, you know, providing competition to that system and providing kind of a backstop that provides people access when they otherwise wouldn't access to some kind of financial services when they otherwise wouldn't have it is, I think, a really important social good in the long term. Yeah, I think so too. And do you also see from the economical side um, Bitcoin as an alternative to the existing financial system? Is this also a thing that's hey, got I your interest? I don't know how much, I mean, as an American, I don't know how much I distrust the U.S. dollar. Uh, certainly in some parts of the world, it, it matters. I think um, I like to describe Bitcoin as a system that you can use when you are need to decide to not trust someone that you would otherwise have to trust, right? So if you're in Venezuela or somewhere where the currency is uh, poor and you don't want to trust your central bank, Bitcoin's a great alternative. If you're in the US and you're trying to sell legal marijuana, but you can't get a bank account, well, you don't want to trust any of the banks. And so you have to use Bitcoin. There's, you know, a million reasons why you might want to have a, a financial services where you don't strictly don't have to trust anyone else. Uh, and that's certainly one of them, although I don't know how much it necessarily applies in the US or Eurozone. Yeah, I think it applies more in countries like Zimbabwe or right. uh, in China, maybe, yeah, because right. uh, you're not allowed to do anything else that the nation states want you to do. Many times the, the, the argument comes up that people say, yeah, but people in Venezuela, they can't even use Bitcoin because they cannot buy it. That's well, increasingly less true in Venezuela, but uh, th that is true to some extent. Um, that's also a slow burn, right? That it takes a long time to develop robust markets across the entire globe. Um, in some areas, Bitcoin has very robust markets. You look at China; uh, it's not uh, it's not now on centralized exchanges because most of those have shut down. But it is still. Uh, there's many ways you can purchase Bitcoin online via WeChat Pay or whatever uh, in China, and there's a very robust market. Obviously, in the West, there's a if you have access to financial services, there's a robust market, right? Because you can always wire money to an exchange and buy Bitcoin. But you know these things are developing, and you look at the growth of local Bitcoin. I mean, I think there was a chart ah, maybe a few months ago that. Some people did a study of growth on local Bitcoin, and the highest growing areas on local Bitcoin were not the Western world where you otherwise have access to financial services. It was Russia. It was Venezuela. It were places where, you know, people had legitimate need for this opting out of the existing system for whatever reason. Uh, and the, that 
fast growth, you know, if that continues, then all of a sudden Bitcoin does become available in a lot of these places. Mm -hmm. Because we were just talking about China. I mean, there often is this opinion that in China, the mining is centralized and that they also mine with coal. Yeah, uh, to some extent. I, I don't know how much, you know, obviously China... I think China has a better environmental record at the government level than the U.S. does at this point. So they, you know, the Chinese government takes pollution seriously in the sense, you know, obviously they're not going to turn the power off for it. But at the same time, they care that people can actually breathe in the city, at least to some extent. Uh, people are kind of used to it, but they're still, you know, working to improve this. And so the Chinese government, you know, they're trying to push more and more renewables even if it's a slow process i don't know how much mining is on the problem is coal is still expensive even in china uh, coal is much more expensive than a lot of the power that you can get that's otherwise renewable or stranded energy that you have no other access to um, and so that's i think slowly falling off a little bit there's been pressure from the government for people to stop wasting this resource and you know kind of stop hurting the environment for this stupid bitcoin thing mm -hmm. and also it at the end of the day it's just more expensive right mm -hmm. uh renewable energy you know luckily you know it would be a problem if it weren't the case but luckily renewable energy is just way cheaper at the end of the day at least for hydro and geothermal so you think that the energy consumption of bitcoin is not a problem in the long-term steady state, I think no, because mining is designed to be and is, in fact, very, very, very competitive. And that means unless you're paying the lowest power rate, you're just going to go out of business because you're not going to be able to make money in comparison to your competition. And the lowest power rate is hydroelectric. It's uh, stranded natural gas that otherwise that getting burned off anyway, right? So a lot of it's become more popular recently for... Uh, oil fields, places where they're uh, extracting oil, often when you're extracting oil, you get natural gas as a byproduct and you just burn it off, right? Because it's actually, it's better for the environment to burn the methane than to release the methane into the atmosphere. It's still bad for the environment, but it's better to burn it. Um, and so they burn it off anyway. And if you capture that energy, you can mine Bitcoin with it. Uh, it's Which not, it's not good for the environment, but it doesn't change anything, right? It's getting burned off anyway. And that means that your power is effectively free, right? And so you're paying a cent per kilowatt hour or something like that, uh, which is super, super low and five times lower than coal in the best case. And those mm -hmm. people will always drive the coal-based miners out of business in the long run. Mm -hmm. So because the miners are incentivized to take the power that is the cheapest to have the highest um, revenue. Right, right, right. And the ones the ones who are paying any more than their competition, as long as their competition can buy enough at a low price, they'll just go out of business because at the end of the day, they won't be able to sell their Bitcoin for as much money or they will sell their Bitcoin for the same amount of money, but their cost will be higher and their competition will keep adding more hash rate until they're break even until you know they are mining as much as they can and just barely breaking even and then all of a sudden if you're paying more in power you'll just lose money you stop yeah yeah, yeah. you have to stop or you lose money that's what so. happened in the peer market no many people turned right. the miners off 
Right. And and it also many people moved their miners from expensive areas like China with coal into cheaper areas like parts of Siberia where you have hydroelectric power that is often otherwise unused because you're in Siberia in the middle of nowhere. And so you saw a migration, in fact, of hardware from more expensive power areas where, you know, during the bull market, it made sense to just run them anyway because you were making money, you didn't really care. So just run them, even though you could make more money elsewhere, but it cost more to like take the devices, turn them off, ship them somewhere, turn them back on there than to just keep running them. Mm-hmm. And so once we hit the bear market, you saw a lot of a lot of hash rate get turned off, but also a lot of hash rate moved to cheaper power, which more often than not meant moved to renewable energy sources. Which is actually a great thing. A lot of Bitcoin miners in China, the way they were pitched Bitcoin was you take this box, you plug it in, and it gives you money. Oh. It wasn't, there wasn't like any real concept of what Bitcoin was. It was just like a way to take stranded energy that was somewhere that they couldn't sell because it was in the middle of nowhere and convert it into money that they otherwise wouldn't have gotten. And so that's really, you know, there's a lot of stranded energy in the world and especially a lot of stranded renewable energy. There's also a lot of stranded coal and whatnot, but it's a little bit easier to transport. So a lot of stranded renewable energy in you know in the middle of nowhere you might have a lot of solar uh, available or you might have a lot of hydro available in mountainous regions where you might not have as many people living but you have really large streams where you can build dams and you can uh, generate a lot of hydroelectric energy for cheap but you can't sell it because it's too far from populations too expensive to run the cables blah 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 and so bitcoin provides an efficient way to extract that energy and turn it into bitcoin it's net neutral for the environment. It doesn't help the environment or hurt the environment. It's net neutral, but it gives you Bitcoin mining and security for Bitcoin without hurting the environment or releasing anything additional. Can you say something about uh, Bitcoin mining and the price of mining? What is the relationship here? I think the commonly understood relationship is that Bitcoin mining kind of follows the Bitcoin price, right? So you generally... The as the price moves, Bitcoin mining adjusts the price within a few months. Um, so you know if the price goes up significantly, there's a few month lag time for miners to find new power sources that are uh, maybe previously wouldn't have been energy effective or cost effective, but now are cost effective. So they go find new power sources. They have to build facilities. They have to buy transformers. They have to buy. Uh, hardware and then they have to turn it on and so you see you know a number of month lag time um whenever the price goes up the hash rate goes up a few months later whenever the price goes down the hash rate goes down a little bit later um so i think it's pretty clear that the the hash rate kind of follows the price mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um coming back to bitcoin's properties would you say you're a cypherpunk <laughs> um I feel like someone would get offended if I called myself a cypherpunk, so I don't I don't know. Um But from the I, philosophy I, side, like privacy is important I, and stuff. I care a lot about a lot of these features. I care about providing them for people. I don't necessarily know how much I utilize them, so I think there is a little bit of a different culture there. Um you know, obviously I don't you know, I mean I use Tor and, and systems to protect my own privacy online occasionally but at the same time i i use my real name uh it's my twitter is under my my real name um so it's not 
quite, you know, there, there's a little bit of a difference in philosophy there. There are a number of kind of old school cypherpunk folks who are, are involved in Bitcoin and who find it really fascinating. Um, but not everyone. There is, there is, I think, to a great extent, a slightly different culture there. Mm-hmm. But uh, privacy is an aspect for you in Bitcoin, like for uh, uh, private uh, financial oh, transactions? Oh, without, uh, without question. I mean, I think to get you know getting back to my kind of high level philosophy of bitcoin is a system you use when you must trust no one or you decide you must you don't want to trust a counterparty well privacy is an important part of that in a lot of contexts you know in some contexts it doesn't matter but in many contexts part of why you don't want to trust a counterparty is because you know maybe you're trying to run a marijuana business in the US and you don't want Uh, people to know your all your financial records, blah blah blah. It would be disastrous if you had to release all of that information, uh, at least competition-wise. Of course, you might also want to use Bitcoin to avoid sanctions in India or China um, or Venezuela. And so, you know, this privacy, right? If you're in Venezuela and you're using Bitcoin, you might get arrested for using something other than the national currency. Uh, so, privacy can be really important. Whereas, of course, there are use cases for Bitcoin where privacy might not matter. Um, but I, I think it's obviously really critical to have that available and a default thing for everyone to use. Um, otherwise, it doesn't mm-hmm. you know, reach its kind of potential. Yeah. I mean, now we read a lot about global coin. What's your opinion on that? I don't know that I'm familiar with global coin. It's the Facebook coin. Oh, right, right. Yeah. Um, Zuckbox. Uh, um, yeah. <laughs> I think, I mean, we'll, we'll see exactly what form it takes. Um, obviously, I am curious, you know, I think, I think to a great extent, Facebook coin and other similar systems are, are just illegal arbitrage, right? Facebook would very much like to provide financial services within Facebook for a lot of their fast-growing markets. Fast-growing markets for Facebook are Myanmar, are, you know, Southeast Asia, are Sub-Saharan Africa. You know, these are areas where Facebook cares about continuing to grow its business and kind of taking over uh, any parts of the local economies that they can. You know, Facebook has obviously seen success of a lot of mobile and digital payment mechanisms taking over some of the developing or much of the developing world and they want to compete. M-Pesa is, I think, a great example here. But for Facebook or Western company to provide these financial services, especially if they're going to be somehow US dollar deter- uh, denominated or something like that, well, they have to do KYC. And you can't practically do KYC in Myanmar because no one has, like, no one's going to upload their ID or they don't have the proper ID or whatever. And so building this kind of cryptocurrency is just a way to avoid the legal requirements that they would otherwise have to meet. And so I think the really interesting thing is, are they going to get slapped down for this? You know, is the government going to come to them and say, well, no, you still have to provide, you still have to do KYC on your financial platforms, even though you you know, slapped on this veneer of distributed blockchain. I mean, practically, it won't actually be all that distributed. Um, they're not going to make a 
mined cryptocurrency with distributed hash rate. I mean, no. Bitcoin doesn't even there yet, but uh, so it'll be somehow it'll be pseudo centralized. But will it be enough for regulators to pretend that? It's Facebook doesn't control it, and then they don't have to comply with these regulations, or will they have to anyway? And so I think that's it's interesting in that it allows them to kind of play games with the regulators, um, and it'll probably get adoption in part just because Facebook is pushing it, uh, but at the same time, it it doesn't compete materially with something like Bitcoin, right? Because it will have an element of centralized control at the end of the day if you need a system where you absolutely aren't trusting anyone else it's not going to provide that it just can't um there are some use cases for bitcoin uh where it might compete to some extent with some of the kind of local remittance businesses that people imagine for bitcoin but at the same time you know using it to evade capital controls will likely not be an option because the local government will work with Facebook to ensure that this is not an option or the local government will kick Facebook out and block it, right? So it it really isn't ever going to be able to compete with Bitcoin for the use cases where Bitcoin really, really makes sense. Um, for some of the use cases for cryptocurrency where, you know, Bitcoin's overkill, but there's not really anything else available, maybe it'll compete a little bit. But I mean, at least personally, I'm not interested in that anyway because you know some paypal-esque local competitor can always move in and compete better than than uh, bitcoin at the end of the day your user experience of a centralized system is always better um but there are a lot of cases where you can't possibly use such a system so or you, you know. want your privacy or yeah or you want your privacy <laughs> because then they know everything I right mean, right are you using facebook personally I don't think I've logged into Facebook in. I think I still have an account, but I don't think I've logged in since high school, maybe. Okay. Same with LinkedIn, huh? Because I think you have an account. I wanted right. to add you, but it's like... I think I have an account. I, 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 you know, every two weeks I get yet another email from LinkedIn that I immediately delete yeah. and don't read. Okay. <laughs> I think LinkedIn so, is just a spam farm at this point. What are you using? I mean, uh, Mastodon or how's this other one called? Uh, I don't know it yet. I, I don't, Do you just don't wanna, No, I mean, I... Uh, I treat Twitter as a kind of work account. It's not really a personal account. Mm -hmm. um, for the most part, my personal communication is all via Signal mm -hmm. uh, or other encrypted messaging. Um, not a big social media person uh, outside of, you know, kind of work, mm -hmm. outreach, Bitcoin outreach kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. um, I've also read that you worked on Fiber. Yeah. At um, because I was, I'm interested in it because maybe you can explain what it is. Because with the Blockstream satellites, I think it's used there. Right, right. What, what so, so Fiber was originally designed for, right, when a miner finds a block, their goal is to get it to every other miner as fast as possible. And it turns out the speed of light around the world is non-zero, right? It's a few hundred milliseconds to get something from China to Europe or China to the US or whatever. And it's significantly worse on regular public internet just sending a megabyte of data over a TCP socket, TCP being, you know, the standard way you send data across the internet, uh, because the kind of theory of operation of the internet is everything is sent in little packets, right? So you take what you want to send, you break it up into little chunks, and you send all the little chunks. And then 
you know, most of them will get there, but not all of them, and that's fine. When the most of them get there, the other side will say, okay, well, here's the parts I'm missing. It'll go back and request those parts. You'll send those parts, and eventually the data gets there. Well, going back and requesting the parts you're missing takes another few hundred milliseconds to get back across the ocean. Then you have to send the parts that were, that were lost, and that takes another few hundred milliseconds. And then you go back and forth a few times, and all of a sudden you've wasted a lot of time just crossing the ocean with speed of light. And so fiber intended it was a solution to this problem to f- designed for super super fast block relay by making it completely unidirectional right so the data is sent and then a little bit of extra data is sent so that if any data was lost the other side can still figure out what the original data was um some magical math behind it but in order to get that kind of low speed it had to be unidirectional and, well, that happens to also be what you need for a satellite, right? Because if you're using a Blockstream satellite, if you're using a relatively inexpensive satellite receiver, you don't have the ability to request something back from the satellite. You don't have the ability to send something back. And so it has to be one way. And so the fact that this protocol was already written and designed and implemented and worked and everything made it really great for just shoving it over the Blockstream satellite and using it kind of almost as is. Okay. Is this the only place where it's used or do miners use it now too? Oh uh, yeah, it was uh it's been used for much longer by miners and pools to uh have super fast block relay between them, right? So when blocks are found, usually the fastest way it gets around the globe is via either I run a public fiber network or some pools. Excuse me, uh, also run their own fiber networks or fiber-based networks. It's open source software. You can just run one. So um, it's a protocol. Yeah, it's a protocol and there's a software implementation that's really well optimized and, and super fast. And a number of the pools are on their own. So normally when a block is found, especially if it's in China and it has to cross the Great Firewall, by far the fastest way that it gets around the world is via some fiber-based network. Mm-hmm. What is the Great Firewall? Uh, the Great Firewall here being that the Chinese, generally, internet crossing the Chinese border is very, very slow. In large part, just because the links are all very overloaded. Uh, mm-hmm. They don't have nearly enough capacity crossing those borders, but they also have very pervasive monitoring on data that crosses the border and very aggressive, you know, they try to block VPNs, they try to block, you know, that's where they actually block Google and all these other things. So they have, it's very slow because they run these firewalls that analyze a lot of the data and block things and slow things down. Uh, it's also slow because everything's overloaded, but of course they kind of like it that way because China very much wants to heavily incentivize local competition, right? They want their local copies of Google. They don't want people mm-hmm. to use the Western ones. Um, so the fact that the internet crossing the border is really slow and overloaded is great for them because it just means their local competitors have a leg up because they're just faster. Mm. What are you working on in the moment at the moment? Because you were just uh, live coding on the Lightning Hack days in Munich. What did you do and what is it for? Right. So one thing I'm working on right now is a Lightning library. So one issue with current Lightning implementations is they're kind of 
monolithic. They provide a wallet. They sync the blockchain. They do kind of all of the work required, um, which is great for getting people into Lightning and running a Lightning wallet. But if you have an existing wallet, you know, if you are a developer, you have an existing wallet, or maybe you want to integrate Lightning at a much lower level into your application than just the L&D or C Lightning APIs allow you to, then there's not really a good option for how you implement add lightning support to your existing wallet except to start from scratch implement the whole protocol do a ton of testing you know it's a year of engineering work or more and so rust lightning this library that i've written is a really flexible thing that does kind of all of the hard work for you and then but still leaves all of the kind of how you implement it and what how it behaves up to you, the developer being the client of this uh, this library. And so, you know, how you want to integrate that into an existing wallet is still very flexible, right? So it's trying to kind of fill this niche of how can you integrate Lightning into something that already exists instead of running a new wallet in parallel that is your Lightning thing. Mm-hmm. And... um How many projects are you working on at the same time? Uh, Too many. (laughs) Um, uh, In addition to that, I continue to maintain fiber to some extent (laughs) when I have time. Also working on a new mining protocol replacement, right? So, you know, one of the biggest issues with Bitcoin mining today and with, in my opinion, Bitcoin in the long term is mining is very centralized, Um, right? You have whatever three pools can turn... Uh, control 50% of the hash rate. But mining, actual mining, is really not centralized. The actual ownership of the farms, the ownership of the hash rate of these devices, the operation thereof, is very distributed. But the pools are the ones who run full nodes and select what's getting mined, what transactions are getting included, all of this stuff. You know, the stuff that's important for Bitcoin that these things be decentralized is still centralized on the pool. But there's no technical reason for that. That's just a little bit easier to implement. You could have all of these farms, all of these mining operators run their own full node. They can select the transactions. They can do all of the kind of important work and then still use a pool to split the reward, right? So the the kind of key feature that pools provide is if you're a miner and you solo mine, you just mine on your own work, it'll, you know, maybe you'll find a block once a year, but you have to pay a power bill every month, so you're going to go under at some point, right? So the pool just kind of takes a reward, splits it evenly among all the miners, and you can still have that while having all these farms run their own full nodes, select the transaction, do all this important work, and that would make a huge difference in terms of the practical decentralization of Bitcoin. Uh, and so I've been working on this is kind of very much a long-term project, right? Replacing protocols that are used very widely is a very slow process, but I think an important one. So, you know, maybe over the next 10 years, we'll have kind of re-decentralized Bitcoin mining and we'll get to the ideals that we kind of had in the beginning. So you have a lot of work to yeah, do. Yeah, <laughs> so too you're many not, projects. You're not getting bored. No, it's <laughs> definitely not my problem. <laughs> I saw you uh, coding or working and you were listening to music. What What are you listening to? Uh, mostly house music. Um, so kind of 
nineties uh, house, some modern house, um, a lot of disco house. Um, eh. Do you like to go out and dance also? Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, okay. <laughs> when I'm actually in New York and not busy traveling somewhere, but yeah, yeah. Do you have other hobbies like doing? Do you do you do anything else than coding? Um, go out and dance. Um, <laughs> I I end up traveling a lot, yeah. uh, not just for work, but also for work. Um, mm -hmm. but you know, you hang on a few days here and there. Uh, so that's generally common. Coming back to Bitcoin, what do you think are the biggest threats to Bitcoin at the moment? I mean, I don't think I'm too concerned with kind of immediate short-term threats. I'm more concerned with long-term, you know, what do we end up with kind of stuff. And I think, uh, you know, mining centralization is a huge question mark there. You know, I think one of the I still consider Bitcoin largely an experiment to see whether or not we can build a decentralized currency, because right now it's not. Right right now it is fairly centralized and relatively trusted in the pools. Uh, you know, I, I, it's obviously not a feature of the protocol that's required, and I'm, I'm obviously kind of working to remedy that. But I think that's an interesting kind of long-term question is how do we get there? How do we improve the state of things? Obviously, there's... Also big open questions around lightning and around like scalability of any blockchain system, you know, obviously not mm -hmm. unique to Bitcoin, but any of these systems, they obviously don't scale very far. You know, lightning and these payment channel systems helps a lot, but you know, how far does it go? It's still something that's being explored. Also, of course, privacy and how that interacts with scalability. You know, you can go all the way to one side and you can have these privacy coins that have miserable scalability you know people complain about bitcoin scalability and all of a sudden you had privacy at the chain layer and it's 10x worse if not more and you know can you get effective privacy just from layer two solutions from lightning you know obviously lightning uh, goes a long ways towards having some level of privacy but that kind of there's more research to be done there about what the specific properties there are You know, I, I think there's still a lot of open questions, but they're not things that we're going to answer in the next year or two. They're things that, you know, I'm looking five, ten years down the road, we can start to kind of have a better informed answer. Um, you know, like payment channels were invented by Satoshi, essentially. Uh, not modern payment channels per se, but the concept of having these kind of off-chain transactions that get updated repeatedly before they get included in the blockchain, that was Satoshi's idea. So it's not like these concepts are new. We're only just now having the kind of engineering resources to build them out and, you know, solving protocol issues and coming up with creative solutions to make these things more efficient and more practical on a large scale. So, you know, these things are kind of finally getting built. So it's taken 10 years, a little bit more. I don't think we can make any decisions about how this Bitcoin experiment thing is working until we've at least seen out all of the things that Satoshi invented. I mean, okay, let so alone things that were invented more recently. Yeah. So patience yeah, is uh, an important thing. I mean, even for outsiders, I think, because many people say, so Bitcoin is not working after 10 years, so it failed. Right. Yeah. I... <laughs> There's not exactly that much engineering resources in Bitcoin and all the cryptocurrency space, so yeah. I don't know. But how do you navigate those uncertainties for yourself, like mentally? 
Oh, it's a fun experiment. Oh, you see it as a fun experiment, but it's a hundred hundred billion. Sure, fun. people using it, but <laughs> um, no, I mean, you know, there's there's obviously a duty of care that comes with that, right? So there's a, you know, be very careful with the engineering you do, and and you know, don't break things because people will lose money if you do. You know, ultimately, we have big questions about what the eventual properties of the system are, right? There is a world where Bitcoin kind of works, quote unquote, where it continues to be as centralized as it is today. And some of those centralization properties start being exploited such that maybe there's some level of censorship on Bitcoin, right? And so it, to me, that would be failure, but I would imagine people will still use it for some things and it will still have some utility. Um, so I would consider that a failed experiment, but at the same time, it's not going to, you know, go to zero and, and disappear off the face of the earth. There will still be some people who, who use it and, and have legitimate use case for it. Mm. If somebody wants to be a Bitcoin developer, what does he or she uh, have to know or to do and how can someone enter this community? Be humble, have time, expect to be told that you're wrong a million times. Uh, still happens to all of us. You know, we're all still learning, but it, it, you know, it is a challenging space in that, you know, because it has grown and because it's this large system that is in operation, you know, people have to be very careful and have to think through things very deeply. And so things move slowly, you know, don't expect to, to jump in and, start making a huge difference and rewriting Bitcoin tomorrow. But, you know, I, I think the the closer you get to the development communities in Bitcoin, the nicer people are and the more they're more than happy to help you learn and, and teach you if you're if you want to. Uh, you know, there's people who show up who complain that, you know, they tried to help and everyone told them they were wrong. And it's like, okay, well, I get told I'm wrong all the time and I've been doing this for a while. So, you know, you just have to have the right mindset going in. You have to want to learn. You have to expect to spend a while trying to make any changes, expect to uh, take a while to kind of spin up. But, you know, I think it's a very welcoming community. And so if you're a protocol type engineer, it's easy to get involved in, if not slow to get involved in. Um, if you're more of a, you know, user experience person or designer or whatever, there's also ample opportunity to get involved both with Bitcoin Core, but also maybe more importantly with a lot of the ecosystem companies. Uh, there's obviously a lot of work to be done with building better user experience around Bitcoin, around Bitcoin wallets, around all these things. And, you know, these are also really important projects that people need to do. And so, you know, find your niche. Uh, mm -hmm. it's, it's very doable, but find your niche and, and don't Yeah. Don't read too much crypto Twitter. <laughs> right. Don't read Twitter. <laughs> Talk to people in person. Right. right. It's better Talk all the to time. People, go on IRC, go on live communication methods are always better. Um, yeah, yeah, that's true. So coming to an end now, um, do you have any recommendations for our listeners uh, to get to know more about Bitcoin? What are your favorite resources or videos right. do you have anything yeah i always get asked this and i'm actually not i feel like i'm not the right person to ask because i'm no longer learning about bitcoin with fresh eyes and so you know all the resources that were available five seven years ago are 
wholly out of date and not very good by comparison to today's resources. Um, so I admit I'm not uh, a great person to ask, but... Not for newbies, but maybe for uh, developers. Right. Um, I mean, mostly development happens through IRC and GitHub, right? So if you want to see what people are working on, read GitHub pull requests generally. You know, if you... I think people are generally always happy to answer questions. So if you show up on IRC and you say, I don't know how this works, I want to learn, you know, don't expect an immediate response all the time, but y you can expect that people will respond eventually and, and help you learn a little bit. And, you know, if you show up on GitHub and you want to do, want to get involved in development, just show up and do code review. Don't, you know, show up and say, oh, I think this is wrong. Just ask questions, right? Uh, people are more than happy to receive code review in the form of, this looks weird, maybe I just don't understand this, can you explain why this is what it is? Because more often than not, that's the way you find bugs anyway, right? So, you know, show up and ask questions. Uh, Developer-wise, I think is always, always the right way to go. Mm -hmm. Where can people follow you and your work? Don't read too much Twitter, but you can follow me on Twitter. Otherwise, you know... IRC, GitHub, uh, mailing list, the Bitcoin dev mailing list, uh, Lightning dev mailing list, all those things. Okay. So thanks very much, Matt. That was great. Thanks mm -hmm. for your time. Thanks and for having me. Have a nice day. Yeah. Thank you. Bye. That's it for today. Thank you for listening. What did you think of the interview? Did it bring you greater understanding of Bitcoin and its people? If yes, and if you want to support my show, please subscribe to the podcast in your player, leave some stars and share, 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 share on social media. Feel free to contact me on Twitter, LinkedIn and YouTube or send me a voice message via the link on the episode page. Goodbye from Vienna. Auf Wiederhören. Music. Start with Yes. Delicate Beats. Idea, content and production, yours truly, Anita Posch. <laughs>